Welcome to the Mindful News Podcast. I'm your host, Guy, alongside Jonathan Baker. And today we're so excited to be speaking with author, mindfulness teacher, and tenured law professor, Rhonda McGee. And so being a person kind of crossing those boundaries, again, was giving me experience in the real world as I grew up and as I became a young adult that confirmed, you know, the things that I learned a little bit about our history and confirmed the sense that that history wasn't really entirely past. And so I started to develop a way of managing my own discomfort and and the stress of all of that through mindfulness, partly because I just realized I needed something more and my fancy law degree hadn't really given me that something more because we are bereft of places where we can pause and get to know ourselves. But I think that's the piece that's so important. All right, where did I come from? How did my folks get here? What were some of the things we forgot, you know, the lineage in the old country from generations ago that we never even learned maybe. And where is the sorrow in our own experience? Where were we trained to kind of disregard people who were suffering? How did I pick that up? Rhonda is the author of The Inner Work of Racial Justice, foreword written by our good friend John Kabat-Zinn, and has played a crucial role in helping to educate people by speaking publicly on issues ranging from mindfulness to social justice, contemporary race, immigration to meditation, and law across higher education. Now, in this episode, we speak about the events that led her down this path of this shared innate ability to connect with one another in ways that are essential through mindfulness. We touch upon the us versus them mentality, the progress that has been made in the last few years following the work that Rhonda is teaching, especially as it relates to race and social injustice. And we end with what matters most to Rhonda. Also visit mindfulnews.uk for all of our podcasts, powerful video clips and our growing library of free guided meditations, including this week's latest release called A 5-Minute Meditation for When We Don't Have the Time. I'm your host, Ski on our continuing mission to help as many people as possible organically. If you enjoy the conversation and benefit from it, share it with someone and pay it forward. Okay, so Rhonda, thank you again so much for for joining us today on the podcast. I'm very excited to share with our listeners your story and your significant contribution that you're making in helping to teach and educate to not only your students, but to, to people around the world in mindfulness, but also importantly, the reasons why one should be mindful. Mm. Right? Because I think there's sometimes there's a you know, disparity between the two. And it's something that you continue to articulate beautifully in your videos, your TED Talks, and your book, The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Healing Ourselves and Transforming Our Communities Through Mindfulness. Yes. So it's, it's a great honor for us, Rhonda. Welcome. Thank you. I'm honored to be with you today. Uh, and I'd like to thank my, my co-host, Jonathan for helping put all this together. You know, he's been raving about you for a long time and in several of our podcasts with John Kabat-Zinn. He's mentioned your great work and he's also insisted that we reach out to you. So, so Jonathan, thank you for, for helping to set this up. So perhaps a, a quick introduction, you know, why are you such a fan of Rhonda's work and why have you insisted on this podcast? Thank you, Guy, and thank you again, Rhonda. It's just uh, such an honor and joy to have you here today with us. Your work was originally brought to our attention from hearing John Kabat-Zinn, as well as several uh, members 
of a group page we manage on social media uh, speak highly of your book. So after reading the book, as well as watching your videos, talks on Wisdom 2.0, as well as a masterclass special Black History Month that John also recommended to watch, just extremely, extremely impacted and touched by all of this. And it just feels like it's our duty as human beings to recognize and respond to all of these racial injustices that we so easily can turn away from. So, which isn't really mindfulness. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, thank you again. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that. Just hearing your reflections and what touched you really touches me. So, thank you, Jonathan. Well, Ronald, you speak publicly on issues ranging from from mindfulness, social justice, to contemporary race, immigration, to meditation and law across higher education and beyond. But that little introduction, it won't really give a true reflection on some of the great stuff that you're doing. So can we begin where it all started? And can you mm-hmm. give us, as our listeners, some idea of the childhood you had, you know, where you grew up, your yes. education, and how those formative years really impacted you? Well, thank you for that question. So yeah, I grew up in the United States. I just go ahead and give my year of my birth. <laughs> it's 196, all the way back in 1967, I was born. So, you know, I often say it was the last year of Martin Luther King's life on earth in which I was born, right? So that was a time of a lot of change in the U.S., new opportunities. The civil rights movement had gotten some major victories and yet was about to have sort of backlash to some of those just to begin to to take place. But for me, growing up in the 70s and the 80s, I really was able to receive and I think in a certain sense flower in the period of time in which the benefits of the civil rights movement, opening up opportunities for people like me in the United States who in prior generations didn't have the opportunities that I had, right? You know, my my own mother or grandmother, I mean, they had precious little opportunity for, for formal education. Uh, my grandmother was only able to go to school up to elementary school. My mom finished high school. I was able to go to a college, University of Virginia in Charlottesville, you know, wonderful school, but one that had historically first been limited to to whites, but also to white men up until about 17 years before I came. Even, you know, white women weren't even traditionally enrolled in significant numbers at the University of Virginia. My life then kind of coincides with a period of change and opportunity. And I was one of those kids who kind of had, you know, the sort of traits and personalities and capabilities that enabled me to really sort of seize these opportunities. Good timing. Yeah, good timing, (laughs) right? And like, good set of, I don't know what, because again, you know, I was literally really kind of the only one in my family who managed to have this particular kind of trajectory, even though I had other siblings. I was the only one who went to graduate school and law school and was able to kind of really have a very interesting arc from where I started. Why is that? I mean, I do think there are a combination of reasons, some of which have to do with the whatever kinds of traits we have, you know, on that whole full range, including our ability to sort of fit into kind of a regimen of whatever dominant educational system you got going. 
I certainly, you know, was one of those kids who did well in school, but also I had a kind of a personality that the teachers liked. So in other words, I was one of those who I got a lot of teachers who kind of invested in me as well. And all of that meant that, you know, I was able to get a law degree and I did graduate work in sociology before that and ended up going to California after law school and starting a law practice there. And during all of that, I, again, on the one hand, was so excited to have all these opportunities to, you know, to make the most of this life. But at the same time, I was being met with evidence that my being in the places, in the spaces, in the profession that I found myself in was not something that everybody was excited about. So, you know, kind of what we now call microaggressions, these sorts of, and worse, you know, kind of insults and vague threats targeted to me as a Black-bodied woman, petite woman, were not, you know, were common enough, uh, a part of my experience that I knew from those experiences that racism, sexism, all these sorts of isms that can make some of us more vulnerable, even in a time of opening opportunities and even in a, in a life in which we see our, you know, our seize on the opportunities and activate the agency that we have. Uh, so for me, it was like, okay, yeah, I'm doing the best I can. And I'm also seeing with my own eyes and my own experience how racism, sexism, and these lines of like who belongs and who doesn't and who should be allowed to serve as a lawyer as opposed to being, you know, the presumptive criminal defendant? Who should be able to live in a certain kind of neighborhood, traditionally white neighborhood, for example, as opposed to being someone who just cleans the houses in those neighborhoods? Yeah. In other words, I was kind of transgressing a lot of like presumptions and assumptions, you know, conventional wisdom about where we all belong. And so being a person kind of crossing those boundaries again was giving me experience in the real world as I grew up and as I became a young adult that confirmed, you know, the things that I learned a little bit about our history and confirmed the sense that that history wasn't wasn't really entirely past, that there were things, dynamics in play that were kind of replicating the hierarchies that have been a, a feature of at least U.S. culture in my own experience. And now I've come to see a, variations of that appear around different places around the world. But certainly in the U.S., these hierarchies around race and gender that were systemic and structural and, and very kind of a, a feature, not a bug of our culture for most of our history, were still a part of the contemporary world, even in a time when we had officially disavowed, right? We had changed the laws. We had opened up the universities. And nevertheless, you know, there was lots of evidence in my own personal experience. And then, of course, we do research around this that uncovered that we still had work, you know, lots of work to do. We were still fighting against sometimes hidden, but not always hidden, cultural commitments still just beneath the surface, sometimes bubbling up to maintaining these hierarchies and keeping people like me in our place. And so, um, you know, I left law practice, went into teaching, and I taught a range of things. But one of the areas that I taught him was around race and uh, American legal history and really invited students from all different types of backgrounds and at the University of San Francisco, where I've been teaching now for more than 20 years. You know, we have students from all around the globe. Uh, of very different backgrounds, lots of rich intercultural, intermixed lineages around these 
places of teaching and learning, my little seminar classes. And we would be studying, you know, the intersection of law and race in the context of the U.S., putting it as much as possible in a little bit of a more global context. And I started to just realize that for me to be able to keep teaching those classes, looking at these cases and looking at some of the really ugly history and the justifications for that history that you can see if you really look at our, you know, our politicians, you know, you can see just a lot of like stuff that we don't like to look at, but is there if you're willing to read. You know, I, I realized that for me to be able to do this work, to read it, to sit with others who were doing it for the first time, which is often quite heartbreaking and disappointing. I was leaning into my own practices of meditation, movement practices. And at a certain point, I kind of realized I really wanted to be able to offer that kind of extra support to my students. And everything that I've kind of done at the intersection of mindfulness and race and social justice and advocacy work has flowed from those experiences in those classrooms with these students who were earnestly trying to learn, but also I could see, you know, somewhat like students who are studying, for example, climate change right now. You know, you come in, you care about these issues, and you start to read these things, and your whole spirit starts to get impacted because you just see it's a lot worse than you thought it was. The evidence is ugly and it's painful and we're in it, we're implicated and we don't know what to do. And so it was from having experienced all of that and, and sort of been able to see how mindfulness and compassion practices were really a kind of a lifeline for me, a deep well of resources for me that I started to offer that to my students and the rest, as they say, flowed from that. It's, it's history. But explain the introduction of mind. You say, oh, then mindfulness and meditation practices. But <laughs> what do you mean? It's like, you know, <laughs> yes, yes. you kind of walked over that a bit. So, so yes. why and how? Because for a lot of people that we've interviewed on this, it's usually there may be like a physical pain or, a, you know, mm. some stress reduction requirement that's forced them yes. into seeking some new, you know, well, what options are there? They stumble across this and, okay, yes, yes. it worked for me. So how does your your journey into mindfulness were you always inclined into it's about the mind and philosophy? If you could explain oh, a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I will just to say that in those classrooms, it was sort of that emotional pain, really, of encountering that information that was sort of akin to the physical pain that kind of made at least some sort of support, something that my students were willing to receive. But for me, oh, yeah. Mindfulness students, students, your law students, right? Or... Yeah, my law students. And I hadn't actually pursued mindfulness teaching at that point, mm -hmm. but I had my own mindfulness practice. So I had a personal practice that I had developed. And I had developed that in part, again, in response to my own pain, the suffering that I was alluding to. When I moved from North Carolina to California and experience a racial slur, like while walking out of my law office building mm. right downtown in San Francisco, right? This famously liberal and progressive place where someone walked past me and, and just said, you know, go home inward, right? Like just, you know, those kinds of experiences were very difficult, but for and me frequent, to be able to- Frequent? Often enough, you yeah. know, that you just get this feeling that, okay, well, you know, it's not the southern part of the United States, but we still have racism. You still know, it's, there. Yep, yep. Yeah, it's still there. It's in a different, it looks a little different, but it's still there. And there are still all of these different subtle signs, you know, that people would rather me be somewhere else. 
And yet this is where I am. I'm working, I'm contributing, I'm paying taxes, I'm doing my work. So I was dealing with all of that and just realized that I needed my own extra support. And I had already found mindfulness as a support for just coming into the law profession as this, again, when I went into my law firm, I was the only Black attorney out of 70 lawyers in the joint. (laughs) And this was in the 1990s. But that's not uncommon even today. A lot of the corporate offices, the law offices, even especially here in San Francisco, frankly, you know, we are Black folk continue to be relatively underrepresented in California. We're in San Francisco. We're just maybe 5% of the population. It used to be more in San Francisco, but, you know, with economics being the way they are, et cetera. So I'm still, whenever I go in different places, often the only one. And that means that if if anybody anywhere has any kind of bias, it's going to be, you know, it's going to find its way, likely to find its way, you know, on my step. And so I started to develop a way of managing my own discomfort and, and the stress of all of that through mindfulness partly because I just realized I needed something more and my fancy law degree hadn't really given me that something more. What I remembered was that my grandmother, who had not had all these opportunities, had her own kind of centering practice commitment. So every day she would get up before dawn. And for her, it was a Christian-based practice. But she would spend 30, 45 minutes in prayer, in reflection, in remembering who she was and developing a kind of intentional intentionality with which she would move through the day. And then she would come out of her bedroom with that sort of sense of who she was that even as a little girl I saw and I was inspired by. And so all those years later when I thought, well, what what am I missing? It may be some intentional way that I'm starting the day. And I was drawn at that time more toward, you know, practices that would help me focus more on clarifying the mind. I mean, this is part of part of a legacy of going to the kind of universities that I went to. So I kind of moved from the Christian-based practices that, my, that were familiar to my grandmother into mindfulness, but that's how it was for me. And so I had been developing the practice for my own well-being, and I just started to experiment with inviting my students around those tables while we're looking at these difficult histories together. And to think about how their own families, lives, lineages intersected with the materials that we're reading. So to kind of bring in this sort of contemplative approach to learning, which is also a movement that I've been a part of, the kind of approach to teaching and learning that centers the kind of subjective experience, you know, makes room for our lived experience and makes a link between the experiences we have and those objective, third-person, scholarly, research-based experiences so that, you know, we don't leave ourselves outside of the room as we develop these great minds. And so that contemplative educational project, too, was something I found happening in the U.S. and now international movement to bring these modalities for examining our own experience right into the classrooms. So all of that made me a little bit confident in you know, my own personal experience, but also this movement that was just starting around contemplative education, how we expand the aperture and how we know and create space for our own experience. That enabled me to start letting my students sort of pause, reflect on their own family stories. I gave them assignments to interview people in the family, 
to learn about, for example, yeah. how laws and policies around race and racism impacted how they came to be in the United States at all or in San Francisco, what they knew themselves, what their family members knew about how the culture continues to sort of subtly and not so subtly train us in maintaining these racial hierarchies. And so that began to open up conversation, open up also space for listening to each other in a way that could create, you know, a sense of respect for difference and also broader capability to to be together with complex yes. reality, mm-hmm. you know, like without having it be one way or the other, but to see that multiple truths can coexist in a space. So, yeah, um, it was really bringing meditation, bringing reflective inquiry. Uh, so journaling and mindful communication practices, emotional intelligence into the space, all of those kinds of practices that are germane to basic mindfulness. I brought them right into these classes, and it really seemed to make a really important difference for my students. This is the Mindful News podcast. And in the second half, Rhonda talks about her mindfulness practice, the importance of compassion, and what matters to her. You've been throwing the word mindfulness now, and it's, you know, for people that have been in the mindfulness game for a long time, it's like, we've been fortunate enough on this podcast to have People like John Kabazin, Machu Ricard, as I mentioned, Daniel yes. Goldman, Chad Mintang, yes. who like you are teaching this. And I loved how, how you described it as this shared innate ability to connect with one another in ways that are essential. Yes. Right? You mentioned, right, that, that build compassion. Yes. So can you help to elaborate on this innate ability, right, and the importance of knowing it, but also the training it? And like when you're speaking about it, it's like almost like, as we've got all these differences, it's like this Venn diagram where in the middle there's this, this thing that unites us all yes. deeper than the color of your skin or, you know, your, yeah. your sex or your whatever may be. You know, do, do you know I, for, for someone that's thinking, oh, mindfulness, the benefits is stress reduction, right? Or more productivity, great creativity, but like, yes, right? Yes. But yeah. you know what I mean? We're, we're, yeah. we're actually now at a, you know, when we're talking about it, not only on an individual level, but a collective level, when we're all in tune to this, this, this education, yeah. which seems to have been lost. Can you, can you share a little bit? Yeah. On that? Yeah. And I thank you for asking a little bit more about how I conceive of mindfulness, how I think of these basic practices for deepening our way of relating with reality. Mm-hmm. You know, John, sort of made famous this definition of mindfulness of paying attention in a particular way, right, on purpose and with this friendly openness, this attitude of, you know, kind of openness, curiosity, that when we experience this over time, helps develop in us a way of being, right? So the practices on the one hand, and then a way of being that can result, right, from those practices that makes us more equanimous, right? More able to kind of move through the challenges, including the stressors of our lives without getting stuck is the way I like to put it, looking at the Buddhist teachings, right? That middle way. How do we move through the challenges of our lives with clarity, with awareness, without bypassing or avoiding what's here to be seen, but without also seizing on the challenges that we're experiencing, making a brand new fixed identity, creating a, you know, a kind of a a rigid, egotistical way of being with those things. So this is, to me, what mindfulness opens up, this sort of flexible way of moving through 
a world of uncertainty, volatility, chaos, ambiguity, all the things that we're dealing with right now. And for me, these practices then are radically available to any human being. We don't have to be coming from any particular background. We don't have to be adopting any particular religious overlay, actually, although for many good people out there, mindfulness is associated with their religion. But one doesn't have to associate it with that to be able to benefit and access this capacity we have for being present, for knowing what it means to be aware of awareness, right? To become conscious of our consciousness. So that aspect, which I think is common to all human beings, if we stop and pause and invite ourselves to think about, you know, how is it that we know that we're sitting where we're sitting right now? What part of us, right, can, if we're, if we're willing to do so, place our attention on the nearest wall, right? We all know there's a part of our brain, part of our awareness that can focus on the sound of my voice, if I ask if you're able to hear me in your presence of this podcast and you can hear my voice, if I pause and invite you to sort of focus your attention on that sound. Each of us, despite the fact we're in different physical packages and genders and everything else, we can do that together. And so to me, mindfulness is its a first approximation to a kind of way of being that inherently unites us or can, yeah. has that inherent potential to help us see our common humanity. Yeah, and so that's one of the reasons why I get so excited about its potential to support us in a world in which we have inherited so many different ways of convincing ourselves that we're so different, that we are so <laughs> inherently different, that we can barely understand each other and certainly can't live together and, oh my gosh, can't marry from... We've inherited a world that's been shaped by those really myths, frankly. Yeah, well, I was saying, I saw a picture of you with, you know, John and Cornell West. And I, I've been a huge fan of Cornell, you know, for for many that's, years. Uh, and yeah. there's a Netflix documentary where, you know, it's called The Examine Life. You know, one of his quotes, and, and I love the way he speaks. Yes. You know, he said, well, how do you examine yourself? You know, what happens when you interrogate yourself? You know, what happens when you begin to call into question your tacit assumptions and unarticulated presuppositions and begin then to become a different kind of person, right? Is that different kind of person, whether it be down to religion, race, sex, or politics, is that different kind of person akin to what you're talking about, mindfulness, minimizing biases? You know, I think that's an expression that, that you use, you know, we are all brothers and sisters living in the same house, right? Yeah. You know, so can you explain a bit how, you know, because if I'm thinking of mindfulness and I know it because, you know, mindfulness helps me reduce stress and then someone talks this profoundly about, you know, something, you know, almost spiritual. Can you share your insights on that? Yeah, thank you so much again. You know, I think what we're touching on now, it's I the have a stuff. It's the good stuff. Really. It's the good stuff. And I have like a tender hearted reaction to it because it's like, oh, yeah. I mean, you know, so much of mindfulness has been presented to us in ways that, you know, were kind of what the contemporary society calls for and receives well. And what science 
can, what science demands. Science can catch up with, right? Exactly. Because you know? if right? science isn't there, then the rest of one science hasn't <laughs> confirmed it yet. Doesn't necessarily mean it's not any less true, right? Right, 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 right. Yeah. But right. at the same time, we have to respect that the science has its place, and you know. Well, but I yeah. mean, it's more than that because I mean, the science has been available to help confirm some of the ways that um, mindfulness can help us minimize our automatic reactivity to individuals. It's not just that it's the emphasis on science, it's the particular emphasis on a kind of on experiences that, frankly, let's just name it, are more evocative or more uh, consonant with dominant social positions, right? So if you're in the dominant most powerful, most well-educated and wealthy group, you're going to develop a certain kind of mindfulness that's going to spend a little bit less time on social injustice issues because you're not being beset by those things. You know, if you are in the dominant sort of racial group, you're going to not think so much about, well, what about minoritized perspectives? What about people who are on the margins? What about, right, immigrant experiences? It's just the nature of how we produce things in a political economy, capitalist, or, you know, one that is, again, being born of certain kinds of experiences in certain times and places. And for all the beautiful things that my beloved friends, John Kabat-Zinn and others have helped deliver, those first most prominent teachers in the secular mindfulness realm, certainly in the United States, were disproportionately white racialized folk whose personal experiences did not invite much deep inquiry into, well, how can these practices also help us with this problem? And so I do think that it shouldn't surprise us. I mean, you know, I was actually just happened to be listening to a conversation of folks who are in the tech uh, industry looking at the ethics of these beautiful technological devices and products that we have, you know, been fortunate to imbibe in the last generation. And, you know, one of the female designers on that call, uh, innovators on that call said, you know, it's just a fact that products are produced in ways that reflect the people who produce them. She's like, it's just a fact. So it's rampant through tech that, you know, the disproportionality of male product designers is impacting what's available online. But that's true of everything. So mindfulness is a product that was mindfulness, right? In the contemporary world, the secular world. Where it's packaged today, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it was disproportionately produced through white and disproportionately male experience. And so part of what I'm speaking to is simply what happens when we start open up the aperture and we start to find that it's not necessarily... I'm certainly not the first person to think about some of these social implications of these practices. But again, often when something is produced in a particular context, we select for the things that we think will sell here. And once that that's sort of settled, settled in, perhaps then we can open up a little bit more and see, all right, what else perhaps what have we left behind in that? knowledge that we're still in the business of selling things. So, I mean, you know, then at a certain point, it's like, oh, well, maybe diversity sells a little bit. So let's sort of look for that. But that, you know, so that is a part of what we are up against. Mindfulness is not a sort of an escape hatch out of the context of political capitalism that we're in. 
And so what I'm hoping is that in conversations like this, we can start to lean into the agency we do have, the intentionality we can develop more specifically, if we are willing, and incentivize ourselves to think about and to you know open up that aperture. Whose voices are being included here? Whose perspectives? What perspectives? What other perspectives might we bring into the conversation? And from that place, what kind of mindfulness is? Because sometimes I put in, I emphasize that mindfulness is many things. It can look quite different. I will say that, again, from the perspective of traditionally marginalized people, an emphasis on the ethics of mindfulness how it can help us to do right by each other, how it can help us minimize the harm, which we know, you know, if you look at the foundations of the deep traditions, the teachings of the Buddha upon which what we call mindfulness is not always, but often based. This ethics of minimizing harm is so central. And yet, you know, we're trying to package this for the most ready acceptability in our dominant cultures, focusing, concentrating, being productive, performing well, ethical behavior and care for each other isn't necessarily, right, the aspect that we highlight. Doesn't mean it hasn't always been there. And for me, of course, my own experience naturally sort of, I think, orients me in a different way. I lead with the ethic of care aspect of it and everything else flows from that. Well, Jonathan, I know you had a question that you wanted to ask one of us, so why don't you go ahead? Yeah. You know, I was thinking, how would you suggest we go about encouraging people in our communities that are sort of already blinded by greed and violence to turn toward these issues in a way that is non-othering? Because what you guys are talking about is part of mindfulness is the non-othering, the non-judgment. And it's not limited to this personal relaxation. I'm in my happy little bubble world and I don't want to look at that because it's uncomfortable. So we do need to turn toward, like you said, and it feels like once we start to do so, not only are we battling the judgment, sometimes the self-talk of the sorrow or you used to think this way and you didn't realize mm-hmm. there was racism mm-hmm. embedded in your country and in your culture. Yeah. Uh, so battling some of that sorrow yes. as well as who am I, you know, I'm this broken little guy, the little mm-hmm. bitty, you know, city in Illinois. Yeah. And yeah. who am I that's going to just come out all of a sudden and not that we want to come out and point fingers because that's not it. That's othering. But what would you suggest there how to approach that yeah. in, in both of those ways? Wow, Jonathan. I mean, that really is the question that keeps me exploring. I will say that it's not easy. We know it's not easy to turn toward these issues of othering and belonging of race and racism, looking at our history of white supremacy and suppression of, you know, different gender expressions and classism, right? But the more we create within ourselves a way of coming home, I mean, I think everything starts. 
if we can just, you know, open up more loving uh, space for seeing who we really are in the midst of the contexts that shape us and that shape, you know, division and conflict around us. And again, I say open up space because I think there's always more to be seen there. Actually, I think we could spend and I hope I expect I will spend the rest of whatever length of life I have continuing to open up that aperture. So I see this. First of all, I mean, I think I love your question, my dear. And I think, um, as you can <laughs> imagine, I'm still in the throat clearing process of responding <laughs> to it because there's just so much to it. Sure. And I think in, in and of itself, that points to another way that this way of being is inviting us to be in kind of a little bit of a radical John would now use the word orthogonal, right? He wants us to have a shift. Orthogonal <laughs> <laughs> institution, yeah, right? right. That, that we're going to enter into this at a different angle, right? And one yeah. of the things I'm suggesting we're entering into is like we have a culture that's very much about we, you know, we fix it in 50 minute increments, or maybe if we're, you know, if we really get luxurious, we develop a course. And then as, you know, we together, we spend six weeks or 14 weeks in a semester somewhere or maybe three years and we get a degree and we're done. No, if we're talking about really doing what you're describing, my dear, this is lifelong work and it's multi-generational work. So all we can do is, again, I think, have the questions that you're raising, have the create spaces where these important questions can be placed and held with love and with support for really unpacking together what wisdom we can bring. Because at the bottom of all this for me is this kind of loving way of being with the hardest questions that animate human existence. That's where that non-judgmental piece that, that Guy was talking about comes in. I'm a lawyer or trained as a lawyer anyway. I don't practice law right now, but I know that, you know, it's hard to be non-judgmental about mm-hmm. these. It really is not easy. So I often say as non-judgmental as possible, <laughs> but like, again, a lot of love and a lot of spaciousness, you know, because we, we are bereft of places where we can pause and get to know ourselves. But I think that's the piece that's so important. All right. Where did I come from? How did my folks get here? What were some of the things we forgot, the, you know, the lineage in the old country from generations ago that we never even learned maybe? And where is the sorrow in our own experience? Where were we trained to kind of disregard people who were suffering? How did I pick that up? So I think this kind of depth work, this kind of getting to know ourselves is a foundation and bringing love and kindness, not judging. If we can do that with ourselves, then we can begin to create more space for doing that with others. But you can already see, I'm I'm talking about Building communities and, you know, spaces where we can become whole again, where we can heal and we can heal together. And this is the commitment. This is the investment, I think, that my work is inviting us to take up as not just the side thing we do every once in a while with mindfulness, but really maybe as sort of the center of how this can live in our world. Because you can see how much the world needs more spaces like this, right? Absolutely. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for the question. Thank you for the wonderful response. You know, looking back at the last five, 10 years, how different are you before the introduction to mindfulness? And now that you've learned it, taught it, you know, 
how different are you as a person and, and in what regard, if mm. any? That's such a good question. It's such a good question <laughs> because I'm always brought up short by the way that we are so kind of, you know, good at just like taking in what confirms who we already are and like, you know, old wine, new bottle. <laughs> we're good at staying the same. That's kind of what the human does, right? It really, and I'm just a human being, soft-bellied, carbon-based, just like everybody else. So I know that I have that temptation just like everyone. But, you know, I'm on a, I'm on a leave of absence from my teaching job right now, as one example that I would say points to an answer to your question. I trained as a lawyer, then I did all that I needed to do become a, to become a tenured law professor. There's a lot of socialization in that, to stay in that forever. And yet this year, I've, you know, partly as a result of the great pause of the coronavirus adaptation period, but really holding all of that with mindfulness is opening up still this part of me that uh, really wants to not miss the deep teachings of this time, not miss the changes of this time, and to see that everything is changing as the teachings will sort of help us see. So yeah, I think I'm I'm a much more, I am who that part of me that needs everything to constantly be the same or needs to feel like I understand, you know, law professor, I, I need to know I understand something, get out in front, be the teacher. There's a part of me that's just opening up to being taught that is um, losing the sense of grip on like, I already know and I have something that it's like, I am learning just like everybody else. And I think my mindfulness practice is helping me be that lifelong learner and keep my heart open, even in the time of a lot of fear right now. You know, there's a lot of like fear that's coming up for me too. But mindfulness is helping me sit in that and just be like, all right, what is this time trying to teach me? So for you, you know, it was one of the old action for happiness questions that I love to ask at the end, you know, what matters most to you? Hmm. What matters is love and making the most of the moments that we have while we have them. Waking up in a certain sense. I don't mean that in a highly technical, fancy Buddhist sense, but just being awake and present to the moments that we have because none of us is promised to live through the rest of this day, right? That's the the one teaching. If you can just remember that that most important thing that, you know, we are fortunate to be here today and to live with some intentionality around how to care and how to love in the moments that we have. To me, that's the most important thing. Beautiful. If people are interested in your in your book and getting a, a copy of that, I know it's your website, rondavmcgee.com. My, you know, and I'm going to put the link into that so, so people will be on the screen now and people can link into that. But, you know, any other recommendations if people want to get in hold of you or just follow you a, a bit more? Yeah. Well, I'm certainly on the various types of social. So mm-hmm. on Twitter and Facebook, um, I'm working on a new book and I'm often oh, nice. teaching at a place not far from you, certainly a click or two away. So, yeah, um, I'd love to to hear from folks out there who've heard any of this or read any of my work. I love to be in touch with people who have found some inspiration in anything I've shared. And and I look forward to being in conversation going forward from here. We thoroughly have enjoyed this conversation. I mean, genuinely. You know, Thank you. Yes. 
We're just scratching the surface. So that's exactly. I literally had like five yeah. more questions, but um, well, and I'm curious uh, yeah. about your experience, Guillaume. I was like, okay, now I have some questions for both Guillaume and Jonathan. <laughs> so um, I'm happy to come back at some point, or you know, I, I would love to. Perhaps you know, when you're about yeah. to release your next book, yes. you know, we can coincide it with that because I would love to do like a, a round two where having you know asked these questions and heard your yes. your re- response, your repost, and just you know maybe have another round at it because um, with John, every time we speak, you know, it's always, all right, well, I feel like we're just cracking the surface yes. and I yeah. really want to get deep with John and like, okay, we'll have to do it next time. The next time we come and <laughs> yeah. by the time mm. we've caught up and stuff, the hour goes by so quick. But um, yes, I, I think there's nothing more fascinating than, you know, when we talk about these kind of subjects, because it, it really is, you know, that as Cornell well said, as Cornell West was mentioning, you know, a life unexamined is not worth living. Yes. And this is probably one of the most beautiful ways to examine life. Yeah, that self, that self introspection. Because if if not if you don't start there, which is you know, the foundation, then everything else you know it pales in comparison. Because it all begins in in the mind and the soul and the heart, yes. and, and connecting uh, to each other through these. Yeah, but the more you, you you're there, the more you you understand that you know we are the boundaries fall down, and you, and the connection yes. starts to manifest itself and. And that's why I love the idea that not only as it relates to race, but as it relates to politics and to everything else, how this idea of more compassion, you know, how do we, you know, pull down the barriers, you know, pull down the walls and, and you know, get closer to one another. So. Absolutely. I look forward to exploring these themes with both of you. That's okay, amazing. well, you heard it here first. All right. Round two, 2023. <laughs> yes. We're going to be back at this again. Beautiful. Let's do it. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks for making it this far and showing your support and love to the podcast. A big thanks again to Be Present Coaching for their support. Find out more about their masterclass mindfulness courses and free guided meditations at bepresent.uk. Bepresent.uk. I'm your host, Guy, and this is the Mindful News Podcast. If you've taken away something from today's episode, please go ahead and share the link with a friend. Until next week, 